So, Brando. Yeah, Jamesy. You know, just what I think, I know our audience. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think we're going to put out this watch episode because we're both busy. Right. I'm leaving for that skills camp. You're getting ready to leave out of town with the family. We're rushing like crazy to try to get a week ahead. I really thought the the watch episode, people were going to give us a little bit of shit about. And it comes through, we get the most feedback <laughs> in, in months. Yeah, you thought it was an easy out for an episode. I know. It's like, okay, well. You know, it wasn't a total blow off because we did do a little bit of research. But I, I, I did think people were going to be like, really, a watch episode? That's what you're going to give us? And they go, really, a watch episode? That was great. I love dive watches. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it just goes to show you. I mean, I told you what my wife said. She doesn't listen to our our podcast. I don't know. Does Patty listen to, to this at all? Ever? Uh, when we're on a road trip and I make and her. you make her listen to it? Ouch. <laughs> Honey, listen to this. We had some really good jokes. You're going to like this. Mm, yeah, I, I, Julia likes to listen to it. So sometimes if she's in the car with us, she, she wants to put it on, but I don't want to put it on. And Lee doesn't listen to it at all. But I told her we did a, a dive watch episode, and she was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." And you know, she said she's going to listen to that one. I thought that's a little whacked to me. That's I don't out know. of nowhere, yeah. yeah. I I did want to give a shout out to Mike. Who sent us in? Uh, you know, one of the messages I got, and did mention another watch that we never brought up. I see. Was that that Bulova? And I've had They've one of these. The, yeah, the Devil Diver, which is a pretty good looking classic watch. He was he was mentioning that that's his new go to rough tough. It's it's not very expensive. You know, beat him right. up, beat him up daily dive watch. Exactly. Yeah, I had one of these. I don't know how long ago it was, but. Uh, the nice thing about it is it looks nice, it's pretty durable, and it's uh, not expensive at all. And it's got a Swiss-sounding name. Is that Swiss-sounding, you think? Somewhere Germanic? I, I was trying to come up with a Swiss accent <laughs> on the fly, but... <laughs> we need... We do I'm going to need, need a, some help on that one. We need an accent coach, is what we need. If, there, if there's we any do. out there, I think uh, give us a shout back. And uh, we'll get something going. We'll uh, we'll trade stickers for um, accent lessons. Yes. How's that? Tiffany, <laughs> check those emails. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Great Time Podcast. You're here with... You like to have a good time? You need a good watch, Jamesy. I got Rolexes for fifty bucks, Brando. <laughs> Did you ever see those guys in New York City? Take a take a pick, any pick. Did you ever see those guys? Yeah, the, in New the York guys City? That open up their the, trench coat and there's uh, just watches, fake Rolexes, fifty bucks, fifty bucks. Yeah, you could get them for fifteen dollars back in the eighties. My buddy Steve had a a couple. He gave me one. They don't last for very long. Oh no! no. But they were decent, uh, decent looking. Which is surprising when you could get a $15,000 watch for $15 and it doesn't last very long. But it did have like the Swiss movement and everything. It 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 kind of fit the bill as far as it looked like 
I mean, it did. It didn't have the ticking second hand. It had the the constant motion second hand. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. We had yeah. a we had a guy that used to come into the dive shop like once a quarter, maybe back in the the early '90s. Yeah, hawking hawking fake watches. <laughs> he had he had them all. You know, you want tags, you want Rolexes. We got them all. He wants you to sell them. Or is he no, just he selling was, them? He to was you? Just, oh, yeah, man. he was just trying to. The old guy at the at the shop, right? Always dug him. <laughs> the old guy at the shop. Nice. But hey, listen, I know you're getting ready to head on down to the old Caribs. Caribs, baby. Sun, sand, black coral, sponges, the exhilarating deep. I I, I know I know what you're you're going down for. Nude beaches. Nude beaches. <laughs> And I've got a exciting story for you from the Wayback Machine. Oh, really? I'm I'm all ears. You always have an so exciting it, story, Jamesy. This one comes from the Bahamas. Hey, man, it's better in the Bahamas. He's better in the Bahamas. And it this one this story is a, a bit of a just like a classic divers story that you would read in the likes of Skin Diver back in the 1960s. About some guys going diving, going diving deep, deep diving back in the day to snap a photo of a big old sponge that you know, just nobody was seeing. And, you know, this is back in the day when you could shoot a picture of a giant orange barrel sponge and it's like a one out of eight photos on planet Earth, you know? Right, right. Yeah, back in the day when before camera phones and just GoPros and things like that where everybody's got a goddamn camera now. Everybody's so calling themselves a photographer. Everybody. You thought it was bad when everybody was taking those disposable, <laughs> you know, 110s and snapping yes. photos and calling themselves photographers. You thought it was bad when everybody had an Eichelite plastic aqua shot <laughs> stuff in a... Disposable yeah. camera and yeah. call themselves photographers. Now, now that you can shove an iPhone into a plastic bag, case, yeah, plastic case, yeah, they have some of those cases out now. Yeah, but now, but, but this this episode is going to take care of and cover a lot of things that I know are hot button issues on the Great Dive Podcast because it it covers early photography. Really, and I don't mean just like knowing your f stops early photography. But needing a real exploding flash bulb. I mean, that's how back oh, we're wow. going. Okay, cool. Yeah, where you carry yeah. the lamp, the um, what is it? It's like a a machine gun belt of flash bulbs. A bandolero. Bandolero. That's it. Yeah, it's you know wall diving, deep, deep wall diving, deep air diving. Nice. The good old days. These are truly the good old days. This story. Like it. We're going back to the good old days when you could go diving and, and get absolutely shit-faced underwater, intoxicated, <laughs> forget how to do basic elementary school math, and uh, it was a uh, it's it was a successful dive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole narcosis thing is it's really taking a back seat. Well, I mean, the, the U.S. the U.S. Navy dive tables ran a schedule, you know, all the way down to two hundred or three hundred feet, I think. Right. 
you know, so when everybody got certified and they, they got their hands on Navy tables, it's like, that says right here. <laughs> well, it's, it says right here. I can go 300, 300 feet. feet. 300 feet, all you got to do is come back up to 10 feet for three yeah. minutes. You're good to go. Aye, aye, aye. And I know, like, nowadays the kids are going through scuba class nowadays, and there's a big emphasis on staying shallow and not diving deep. And there's so much access to technical diving courses post-recreational training that the the deep air world is, for the most part, fizzled out. I know there's still a little bit of a, a holdover. But, there, like, back in the day, you know, like in the 60s and 70s, which is why I think a lot of the technical community started, you yeah. know, a couple decades later. But, you know, going to 150, 200, 250 feet on air on a 72, maybe maybe twin 50s, you know, was it was just a dive. Like when you were in, you know, that, that Caribbean water or that Red Sea water and, and you just were on that wall. You just went and went and went until you were s- literally so hammered, wasted, like, <laughs> like, like you, you couldn't even think any like shit. I gotta get out of here. Yeah, oh, that and you're gonna that. see in this that uh, it's the story's really mission specific too. It's like they want to go down and take a picture, and then they know right. they're gonna be so badly narked that it's we got to work on getting up as soon as we can. Whereas nowadays, and like this is all the stuff that we've talked about many times about, you know, what was happening in the 90s with the birth of tech and like what Menduno was doing down down there in the Keys with getting the whole tech community going and the acceptance soon thereafter of helium where you could go to 200 feet and stay for 20, 30 minutes and yeah. be clear, clear-headed. And be clear-headed, and right. Yeah, and be able to think and do something the whole dive, which is a totally different world than doing a bounce to 250 feet for a couple of minutes and then trying to get out a get out as quickly as possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's a totally different uh, dive. It's. But you remember when that that I, I want to call it like a revolution came around. It it met with a lot of resistance. The the whole use of helium to go deep and. The, the resistance was insane. Like, you're going to die on helium, and you're going, really? You're, you're not going to die from oxygen toxicity or, narcan- or yeah, nitrogen narcosis, doing something stupid? Right. In, in those days, I mean, there was a lot of the guys, you know, who were the industry heads in the, you know, in the 90s hmm. who were diving in the 60s and 70s and 80s right. that were doing these crazy dives on air. Right. And then, you know, they had in the early 90s this the big, you know, red line, you know, that was drawn of we are a recreational community. We yeah. don't go past 130 feet and we only use air to a whole new community that was blossoming, that was looking at what was being done in the 60s, 70s, 80s and going, yeah, there's a lot of cool dives below 130 feet, but you can't do them like, like that. Right, you're gonna a you're not gonna remember it, or what you remember of it isn't the truth. Or worst case is you don't come back from it because you know you you know the picture where you're you're trying to donate your regulator to the fish. <laughs> right, that's right. gonna happen, man. A hundred and eighty feet down, the immensity of the sea is both physically and emotionally felt. 
The air bubbles escaping from our regulators seem laughingly shallow, and the strange dream of narcosis steals over our senses, requiring us to concentrate extra hard to overcome the smug satisfaction that comes with deep diving. Smug satisfaction. (laughs) (laughs) This is another fun article. I mean, because it's it's well written. Yeah. Who wrote it? This is by Jack McKenney. Jack McKenney. Old Jack. There's a nice photo in here of uh, this big old grouper. And uh, it really captures the essence of the narcosis. Uh, he, he must have, uh, like, jotted down on a slate the caption as, as he was uh, returning. He said, the caption <laughs> says, Jack Slack meets George the Grouper at 180 feet. <laughs> we are in a fairyland forest of precarious black coral, long fingering sea whips, and huge growths of sponge and gorgonia. A curious grouper contemplates us strange oddities as he fins languidly outside his home, his goggle eyes independently focusing on two divers at the same time. The anchor from our boat is hooked onto the upper edge of the canyon wall, 30 feet above us, and below, a vast infinity of blue taunts us to spread wings and soar into the abyss 1,600 feet beneath us. Nice. Nice reading job, by the way. I felt well, I like I was you. there. I, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the author, man. This is... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, the description in this is beautiful. I mean, it really captures that hanging on the wall yeah. and that... That deep blue to black, that, that just, it's so, uh, the word taunting is perfect. It just, it's taunting. It's it hypnotic. Just, oh, there's another one. Yeah. Yeah. When you're looking down on any, any nice, deep destination, you know, even great, I love looking down the Great Lakes, looking down the, the line going to the wreck. Uh, and it just kind of disappears into nothingness. But oh, you yeah. can see, you know, 80 feet. A vertical viz below you and that line just goes from that yellow right where you're at yeah to like a whitish and just into the black like it goes to nothing yeah the yellow line going into that blue gets darker and darker blue till it's just black and then uh it's really cool when you can see you know when the divers below you are out of your sight but you just see their bubbles coming up kind of thing or even when you see their little tiny bodies with bubbles coming out it's pretty cool it's very, again, like I say, I, I think it's very hypnotic because you're like yeah, in a trance watch. It's a, it's a very captivating sight. Yeah. And my, my wife, when we go to down to the Caribbean islands, she gets a bit nervous on the walls, you know, just because it is. You're flying, man. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. It's like you're flying. Like, like that, that black, she just gets, she gets all nervous like it's going to just. Sucker down, yeah. you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. You don't know what's down her. there. You don't know what's down there, man. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Hashtag true facts. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that, that right there is like one of the biggest draws of diving, besides just the experience of breathing underwater. To me, that was kind of the hook, but the, uh, that visual and that, that feeling you get 
when you're floating over nothingness. You know, you got your wall, but it's like you're flying. Won't get too much in that because you can talk about that all day. Yeah, yeah. Nobody cares about that. Nobody crap. cares about that shit. They want to know <laughs> how narked was this dude, and <laughs> where can I get a dive watch? <laughs> we push on deeper, and into my mind penetrates a passage written by Dr. Hans Haas, describing the narcotic effect of deep diving in his latest book, Expedition into the Unknown. Des takes the diver in a <laughs> butterfly net with... <laughs> uh, Hans Haas is Austrian, so... Uh, yes, Haas is close. It's, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's, Come with me Des if you want to live. Des takes the diver in a butterfly net... <laughs> Which meshwork so soft that he scarcely notices it closing around him. <laughs> the exhilarating yet peaceful feeling one experiences with deep diving can perhaps be compared to a pleasant stroll on a moonlit Bahamian beach with a beautiful companion at one's side, if you know what I mean. The surf gently lapping at the shore and the breathing exotic trade winds from the Atlantic carrying mesmerizing caresses on two strollers alone on that million miles of beach. But like that once-in-a-lifetime moonlit night, all too quickly the dive must end. To avoid the long stages of decompression or perhaps even the dreaded bends themselves, we must hurriedly set about our business of photographing the lush sponge and coral growths that are found here in the deep zone of diving. A quick glance at my depth gauge reads 220 feet. Yikes. And he, But it <laughs> registered in his brain that it read 220 feet? It could have been... <laughs> could have been 160 it could have been 300 but 220 feet wow on air yet on air and Did they guess say what? how much he has on him does he, uh, is he on at 80 or 72 uh there's a photograph of him he looks twins? i don't know how easy this is going to be for you to see but it okay. looks like he's on a set of twin 50s oh okay okay yeah yeah i can see yeah but it, it doesn't specifically say but listen they got 30 more feet to go. Hmm. Yikes. He Dude, says, just, we should tell, or, the, the, tell the folks, you know, where oxygen, period, in the air, where air really becomes toxic. The oxygen does. Because the oxygen level. So you're at 250 yeah. feet, wh what are we talking there? Um, uh, seven, eight and a half-ish. You're at 1.6, 1 1.7. So I guess it's not. Oh wait, wait, wait. Yeah, no, that's no, no, no. Uh, yeah. So at two twenty, you're at a little over seven and a half atas. Right. That's what I'm saying. So you're like eight, seven, eight atas. Um. So you're at one point six ish. Yeah. So you're right on the, you know, you're on the edge there, where it gets a little dangerous, as far as the toxicity, right? The uh, the toxicity of the O2. The O2, is, right. Is, is hitting your, what we would call our limitation today. Exactly. Now, exactly. Now, the narcosis. Is a different thing. He was narked 100, 100 plus feet ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, 
You know, uh, one of the things that we used to call and measure narcosis with back in the day and the day was something called the martini effect. Remember the yes, martini the effect? martini effect. Which was the equivalent of having <laughs> one martini on an empty stomach for every additional 50 feet of water. Right, right. So I'm he's surprised on... you remember the, the specifications of it, because I was like, I just remember it was the martini effect. It was, you know, it was so many martinis per whatever feet, but... Yeah, what if so you're he's like, going uh... on... He's sipping on his fifth martini in a row right now. <laughs> he's had a couple. He's had a few already. He had a rough day at work. <laughs> just one more. An old Frankie. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie, just one more of these martinis. Yeah, Frankie's like, maybe you've had enough. Maybe you've had enough. Nah. No, I got to go home to that Never grumpy. tell a Navy man when he's had enough. <laughs> It ain't none of your goddamn God. business when he's had enough. <laughs> <laughs> Old Jack Slack says, 30 more feet to go. Or is it 25? 220 from 250 leaves what? My mind is fuzzy. <laughs> Never mind. When my gauge reads 250, we'll pause, get our pictures, then begin our long ascent to the surface. My face feels prickly and numb. I watch my <laughs> diving part. <laughs> See what I mean? Like this, you can't get you can't get writing like this now. No. Well, the fact that he remembered it, that his face felt that way, you know, I don't know. I've been pretty narked. I've been to two hundred on air and narked, but I don't like remember to that detail. I mean, That's because you're a shit face. <laughs> no, well, exactly. I mean, I'm like, I don't. I've seen you on five martinis for real, <laughs> I, and you can hardly tell. No. <laughs> five martinis, and uh, yeah. like, and uh, you're right. You can't, you can't hardly tell. You, you get more stoic, and this is probably how you were at 200 feet. And, yeah, you're probably lecturing People, Georgie yes. the grouper. You, you know about philosophy. Yes. What's of, it all about, of, uh, George? What's it all about, man? Does this any of this matter? <laughs> I go into a deep depression. <laughs> Nothing fucking matters. <laughs> I watch my diving partner to make sure he's not doing anything as giddy as I feel. A reassuring glance back at me indicates that he seems to have better control of his senses than I do. But he assured me that he felt the same afterward. He's one of those guys who can drink all day long, and you can't really tell, right? Uh, right, right. I've met a couple of those in the old diving world. <laughs> they were they were seasoned professionals. They were seasoned pros. Yes, it kind of went with the uh, the territory back in the day. Yes. Well, it did, but the, in, the professional divers and the professional drinkers were kind of one and the same. Yeah, the the line was very blurred in between the two, and a lot of overlap. That's because everybody was shit faced <laughs> during the dive and after the dive. Like vision was always blurry. <laughs> but do you remember there was a, a a movement, if you will? There was a philosophy or a, a thought process or whatever that believed. You would build up your, 
I don't want to call it immunity, but you build up the tolerance. Used, the tolerance. That's it. I don't know if you really build up tolerance so much as you just get used to the narc narcosis, right? Right. I, I think uh, th- there were a couple schools of thought. Yeah. One definitely was that that you can build a tolerance to the narcosis, right. and uh, you, you can kind of get used to how it onsets. You can get used to the slowed mind and uh, still be able to work and think. And, and like, keep in mind, like we did a couple of those episodes right. with Sheck back in the day, and like he was down four hundred goddamn feet, mm. and and then realized you know somebody was having a problem, had to go down another. 50 to save somebody and was able to make the conscious decision of, well, I'll just skip breathe. You know, that way I don't, you know, take in too much more of this nitrogen, or the, and, uh, which yeah. brings us to like a whole nother opposite effect of, you know, that, that CO2 toxicity, well, I was gonna say which is CO2. crazy narcotic, right? Yeah, it is. And just remember everything's, you know, with the law of partial pressures, your, your CO2 starts building up. It's different on, at depth because of the pressure. What's not toxic up here is is toxic as you get deeper and as you get down to approaching those depths, you barely need to be building up any carbon dioxide in your bloodstream, your tissues, and and it's going to have its effect of you passing out, you know. Right. And plus, carbon dioxide is even more narcotic than nitrogen. Like over like over a hundred times more narcotic. Right. And of course, you need is... more, but yeah. So. Um... Then the other school of narcosis was the scare the living bejesus out of you school of narcosis, <laughs> right? That that made that made you think you were going to be just hammered, wasted at sixty one feet, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there both ends of the spectrum were covered right there. So, <laughs> and the reality is, it's probably in the middle. You know. You start approaching a hundred feet, and you at least it's different for everybody, right? But it's yeah, for yeah, me. I think it's <laughs> and it's different for an individual on independently different days, right? Exactly, it has a lot to do with your own physiology then in that moment, which is affected by your diet, your mood, your uh, you know that day and your growth as a human being, et cetera, et cetera. But it's um. Yeah, it's it's very very subjective, which I think is a lot of how you know, you know, our current philosophy of diving came about was just a a, a, a search for a little bit of truth somewhere in the middle, right? Because you got yeah the two schools talking to you of ah you can get as you know narked out as you want, you'll be fine. That's half the fun of it. And then you got the other school going, don't ever go below 60 feet. Yes. It's a lot like Democrats and Republicans. It is. There's, there's it? very little, <laughs> there's very few sane people right in the middle. Well, I think there's a lot of sane people in the middle. We're just not that loud. And right now, especially, you can look at both ends of the spectrum. And, you know, as you know, as history has shown, there all you hear about about are the loud people at the very ends and it seems like they've taken over but the majority i believe are we're in it's a bell curve and we're we're in that bell portion that 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 bowl portion of, portion of the bell curve and i think it's uh i mean most people are like approach it with some some reasonable uh respect yeah today right. i think it is it it just it took us 
Mm-hmm. Took us a while to get here. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You know, because you remember the early days, you know, in the, the early 2000s, I mean, there were still a lot of people that would would make fun of the no deep air right. mentality. Oh, yeah. You took a lot of flack uh, for that. But, I mean, you can go to the, the uh, to the extreme with that no deep air thing, like... I will go to 99 feet, and that's as far as I will go without helium, you know. Right. With the price of helium, it's kind of mitigated that. It's kind of put you back in, uh, you know, a a sane level of, okay, i got to approach it with some respect, but realizing that, you know, I'm going to be paying $300 for a fill that I'm going to blow off into the open ocean. (laughs) I don't know. Is it worth it? So you, right, you five dollars a breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just yeah. Just think of that. Another glance, and the depth gauge reads two fifty. Two fifty that came up quick. Two fifty is how they used to say it. Two fifty. Two fifty. Tree fifty is when you've gone way too far. Tree fifty. <laughs> we move in toward the wall and start our own swim westward for two minutes. It took us two minutes to descend, and planning a 250-foot dive for 10 minutes leaves us eight minutes to swim out and back to this same spot and then swim slowly up to the anchor, getting a few more shots as we swim toward the surface. And hopefully we don't run out of gas. Well, they didn't really plan that part back in the day much oh. you know it's just you go down and you just keep an eye on that gauge and, and you're just <laughs> hoping and assuming it's gonna last you the full they never, full amount you know they never even <laughs> thought of like well let's make a calculation of how much gas we're going to be using so at at 250 at eight let's just say for eight addas how much gas you're breathing if you're a great breather a great breather, like a 0.5 cubic foot per minute sac rate at eight addas, you're you're at four goddamn cubic feet a minute. That's if if you're a great breather and most that that point yeah. five is a resting, sitting on deco usually doing nothing, and you're very calm and you're purposely breathing, you know, in out. You're you're concentrating on it. Right, and a good breather nowadays breathing between like a 0.6 and a 0.8 is going to be sucking about six cubic feet a minute. Oh, yeah. Down there at that depth. So think of it. And and this is like a a good working diver in 2022 who has a buoyancy compensator, Mm -hmm. probably knows how to control his buoyancy well, um, is properly weighted, the, the weight is properly distributed so they've got good trim and they have a good propulsion technique in yeah. the water to move easily. Right. Back in the late 60s, they didn't have BCDs. They were working. They were, they were way overweighted. Mm-hmm. So you could easily say that it wouldn't be hard to believe that that consumption rate is even higher back then. Yeah, I mean, a one... A 1.0 cubic foot would not be hard to believe back then. Especially, they're overweighted to get down, and their wetsuit compression, I mean, really puts them in the overweighted area. And uh, you're just working. You're kicking the entire time. And they didn't have a good kick technique. It was all big muscles. 
All big, uh, all big flutter kicks. Yeah, yeah. And on top of it all, th- this is why it really doesn't matter what we're saying because <laughs> uh, they weren't, uh, they didn't have any regulator to donate, anyways. Exactly. So if they were going to buddy breathe, just think, they don't have any gas. They don't really have a a plan if the shit hit the fan. If somebody lost something. No, so we've come a long way in, in that yeah. part of the game. Yeah, that's just my observation. A 16-foot outboard powerboat above us waits bobbing at the surface to take us into its fold of safety, but only if we follow. <laughs> 16, but only if we 16, don't fuck up. <laughs> a 16-foot powerboat. So this is like uh, a nothing boat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a platform to die from. Uh, Do they have manpower on it? A woman power? Human power? But only if we follow the rules of nature, meticulously expounded and improved upon by the physicist Paul Burt 89 years ago when he discovered that controlled ascents and decompression stops were necessary to prevent the bends in divers and caisson workers. Oh, Paul Burt. It's a name I haven't heard in a while. Yeah, he was pretty pretty active in the the uh, realm of learning about decompression and things like that. Yeah, and uh, O2 toxicity. And yeah, he was one yes. of those early yes, physicists the, that, that gave the, us a lot of the. Is it the called tools the Paul Bird effect? To... Is that yeah. what it was? Yeah, I can't remember. I remember the the name. I have to look up the specifics. Just for the Paul Bird effect. Is the typical O2 tox that we think of? Yes. the The CNS hit. That's the CNS hit. That's the seizure ish hit. Right. Okay. The other one's the Lorraine Smith effect. Smith, Lorraine Smith, and Paul Burt. They were uh, a couple back in the day. Jack says, "Nuts! I clumsily drop a flash bulb, and it spins dizzily upward. My hands feel drunk." Carefully, I insert another bulb in the socket and sight my camera on the huge piece of black coral. I motion for Dave Woodward to move in behind me. I squeeze the trigger and have my picture. We check our depth gauges, 245 feet. Watches, four minutes left. Decompression meters creeping up to the red. We turn around come up 10 feet and swim toward our starting point far down below us in the deep blue a long gray shark swims determinedly on as though he knows exactly where he's going and i think i'd like to be a shark man (laughs) i'd love to be a shark man his hands were drunk his hands felt like they were drunk That'd be so awesome to be a shark, man. Reminds me of that Pink Floyd song. <laughs> where my hands felt like two balloons. Right. What is what is that song? Uh, comfortably wish numb. You comfortably numb, yeah. Now I've got that feeling <laughs> once again. <laughs> I'd like to be a shark so I could swim. Maybe that's where Pink Floyd got got their uh, inspiration. I know it was uh, they didn't. They got it from uh, his addiction to uh, anesthesia. That's what they drugs. That's what they say, mate. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm gonna check for, see if uh, they had a I'll see if old Roger Waters had a certification card back in the '60s. 
Also, Jack says, I'd like to be a shark. And then I could swim underwater forever, man. Ripping flesh apart with my teeth. Just like I always wanted to do. Ascending to 200 feet, you know, where the narcosis was finally gone <laughs> and they were thinking clear headed. Man, I feel great at 200 feet. <laughs> we come across huge patches of large black coral branches and vibrantly colored sponges. Great fingers of Gorgonia stretch menacingly upward. At this exact moment, an eight-foot leopard ray glides majestically by and disappears into the depths. The vastness of it all is so overwhelmingly powerful. The sea, the creatures, and the delicious thrill of deep diving. Can deep diving be justified just for the sake of deep diving? To risk one's life or the danger of not being able to carry on one's responsibilities should an accident happen? Of course it can, provided <laughs> that all possible safety precautions are taken. All possible. Now, so this is a, this is the, the the fun philosophical part, you know, that I was wanting to get to, right? So. You know, so he's addressing these deep diving issues, and they know it's wrong, and they know it's bad at this time, and they're definitely going beyond what, what they know of as the, the safe limitations. He says, man was born to be an inquirer, to ask what, why, and how, to stretch out and touch and experience. This is what it's all about, to experience and to be aware of a good and exciting thing happening. Yeah, I mean, it's in our, our DNA to, to push the limits as far as exploring, and I think that's in an effort to figure out why the fuck it, how, how. We get dropped here with no instruction manual. We have to take care of each other and teach each other how to even explore the world to, without getting eaten or killed or die from some disease. And, uh, yeah, I think that's just in our DNA, don't you? I think it's just programmed in there. To, to, to question life. Right. Well, to question. Well, I mean, I want you to think as an adult, if you got dropped on a strange, in a strange environment, you know, and you know, you have nothing as far as memory. That was last week in San Diego. <laughs> after, when Justin took me out for a day of celebrating at the end of the camp. <laughs> it was all of a sudden. <laughs> I realize I don't know where the fuck I am and what the fuck I'm doing here. What's it all about, man? <laughs> well, it's kind of the same thing, yeah. <laughs> aren't we all literally just, I mean, figuratively, I guess, aren't we all just drunk assholes who just woke up in some city and a buddy's buying us drinks all night? <laughs> Isn't that what we are? Doesn't it seem like that? <laughs> it's the essence of life. At the anchor, we pull it free, wrap some of the line around the flukes and set it down again in order that we will be able to pull it free at the bottom when we leave. At 150 feet, our white nylon umbilical line that will carry us to fresh air and safety again leads our line of vision all the way to our boat at the surface. Slowly, we rise up, up to 30 feet. <clears throat> And the first stop of one minute decompression, one minute at 30, four minutes at 20, and 10 minutes at 10 feet. 
We plan on safety decompressing three minutes longer than necessary at 10 feet. <laughs> so that, that's three more minutes on top of the 15 minutes. So they're at eight. They had a whole 18 minutes of deco. <laughs> 18 minutes of deco on a 250-foot dive for right. 10 minutes. I mean, that's not that's nothing in the world of deco diving, but did they deco on uh, on the back gas, the air, or did they use a, like a higher oxygen or 100% oxygen? So he's going to tell us here in a minute that they have a couple bottles hanging, but they are just air bottles hanging. They're not really doing any oxygen decompression. They're just running straight off of Navy tables at the time, right? Which... Again, I mean, it's decompressing, no doubt about it. Right. But in the old days of decompressing, it was just toughing out the decompression. It wasn't like trying to exit clean as possible like we do today with with using O2. Right, right. Running this mathematical model, right, there's a line that that just gets you, if you're in perfect health as a human being, just inside that mathematical line of critical tension on those tissue compartments. Yeah. You, versus starting the decompression thought today of, you know, it's almost like the way you and I plan a dive today is, you know, we could come up out of the water out of a dive to 200 feet cleaner than most recreational divers are exiting a, a dive to 60 feet within NDL. Oh, absolutely. But that has come from a lot of research, a lot of trial and error. And I'm just thinking back in the day that this was going on. These were the Navy tables. The decompression limits were established by trial and error, sending divers to, <laughs> sending divers to depth and bringing them back up and, and waiting to hear, do you have any symptoms? Are you, are you in pain? Are you bent? There was no, you know big studies as far as their vascularity and their tissue ultrasounds and all that kind of shit, the Dopplers or whatnot. It was just, did you get bent? So when the the vast majority did not get bent, they said, okay, this is the limit, <laughs> right? And this is where we want to stop and this is our decompression. Right. It was a um, majority wins. Yes. <laughs> right. Versus how we approach it now. It's been, you know, established – through a lot more trial and error, but also with a lot of scientific data from studies using Dopplers and being able to actually, uh, to a certain extent, measure the inert gas in our bloodstreams and our tissues post-dive or even during the dive. Um, so they know at what point everybody was was clean and how that happened, what, what forced that to happen. So yeah, you know, pushing it out with higher partial pressure of oxygen and a lower inert gas partial pressure. You know, that, that gradient in between those is what pushes gas out quicker and safer. And uh, that's why we, nowadays especially, can do a dive to 200 feet on helium, change some gases on our deco, and accelerate that deco and come out cleaner than a recreational diver doing a you know, 70-foot dive following the tables or his computer even. Right, because that, that's pegged yes, right to the limit just about versus, you know, opening up what we would call that, that window, that oxygen window at depth allows you to start that decompression 
physiologically mm-hmm. by, by basically creating an ascent, but just with the math physiologically by breathing the different gas. Right. Right. Yeah. The decrease in uh, pressure, uh, ambient pressure really works with it. And as well as the, you compound that effect with the uh, change in gas and the lower inert gas partial pressure. Yeah. It works to accelerate the decompression and clean you out, clean you out, if that's the right word, clean you up. Yeah. And uh, we're looking here where he's doing a minute at 30, four minutes at 20, 10 minutes at 10. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a U.S. Navy table that I have, you know, uh, like an older one that's given, you know, a minute at 30, four minutes at 20, seven minutes at 10. I'm looking at uh, like another real new one that looks like they've extended this out even more of you know, two, two, four, three, fifteen. You know, starting at uh, decompression as, as deep as sixty feet on some of the tables. So I mean, this was even going to evolve, yeah, quite a bit just within the Navy tables over the years. Absolutely, absolutely. I think they found out, you know, as they gained more and more experience doing these deeper dives, uh, that that dive plan, those tables were inadequate and. <laughs> While yes, many came up and didn't experience any symptoms as far as the classical bend symptoms, they had other symptoms that they weren't aware of back in the day, you know. Uh, right. And and over the next, you know, five decades. Yeah. There was gonna be so much study that started to go into this and all these new ways of thinking, besides, you know, the Navy table of get on the surface you're okay to put your gear away and if you have to there's a chamber right over there you can jump into cool man (laughs) (laughs) a chamber to jump into yeah things have changed bro things have changed thankfully thankfully we didn't go backwards right right with people like ah just deep air deep air didn't get promoted well you know it's that's the crazy thing is like you, you are starting to hear you know trickles of that that oh. coincide with the cost of helium today well i mean the financial aspects of diving can't be ignored brother diving is not cheap it is not a cheap man's game no definitely not you know and if you want to go deep diving because uh you see all those awesome photos all over social media nowadays you're gonna realize it's either you know, you're going to either pay for that in, in a rebreather, or you're going to pay for that in, in open circuit helium. One or way you're going to pay for that with your life because you're like, or, I'm just going on air because air is cheap. <laughs> well, right, yeah, relatively cheap. Even the price of air is going up. But uh, hey, Jack Slack lived. <laughs> he did. Well, a lot of people lived, and we go back to that normalization of deviance kind of thing. You you fuck up and live, and now this is the new bar. Right. So because, uh, the, because you know who didn't live. <laughs> The guy who didn't get to write the story. <laughs> the other writer who, who had yeah, this yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't be laughing about that because it's sad. But, yeah, I was just going to say that whole thing about the economy is pushing people to do stupid shit as far as breathing air down to depth. Two decompression bottles hang tethered at the stern of the boat, one at 20 feet and the other at 10 The water is calm today, and we aren't jerked up and down like a yo-yo on a string. The minutes tediously tick by, and I wonder, were my F-stops right? How about my framing? 
Well, where's we my shall camera? see. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. George well, the Grouper. Well, we shall see. What's that? Say I was going to say George the Grouper got it. <laughs> George the Grouper got it. Well, we shall see after processing. We move up to 10 feet and wait. Wait while the nitrogen works out of our systems. I lift my mask and blow through my nose to ease the discomfort. Someday, someone is going to invent a mask that's comfortable to wear with a large glass area, and I'm going to be the first person to buy one. We check our meters, still slightly in the red. Our watches, five more minutes. We wait, and I have to pull on my reserve. So they're wearing uh, decompression meters, eh? Yeah, they probably had those old... Uh, Bendomatics. Uh, bend- Bendomatics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, that was like, but it sounds, but it sounds as though they're, they're using the bendomatics as you know, like backups backup, to right. to the tables, you know. Right. So they make it through. He's he's got like five minutes left on this dive before he hits his reserve to suck out the last couple of psi on these little twin fifties he's got. And but he's talking about like this decompression is this dive is a long dive. It's hurting his mask, it's hurting his face. So it just goes to show you the equipment back then was probably, you know, not that comfortable compared to what we got today with a nice silicone double seal face masks. Oh right, yeah, right. Things like that. We got it good nowadays. We got it easy. We got it easy. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, compared to the old days when they're making their scuba tank out of old propane tanks. I feel something on my leg and jump with a start. A two-foot-long remora has decided I wasn't a suitable companion and swims over to Dave, who finds it awkward to focus his camera with the fish's snout pressing against the lens port. Back and forth, the fish swims. Decisions, decisions. We check our watches and decompression meters. Time to ascend. What year was this again? 1968. Oh, dude, yeah. In the boat, gravity once more takes command as we lower the heavy air cylinders to the deck. Cramped feet come free of rubber fins. Cameras are carefully stored away. Metal, rubber, gauges, nuts, bolts, diaphragms, bottles, plastic and glass lie wet and scattered on the boat's bottom. Bits and pieces that take on life and meaning to a diver. Tubes that become part of the human breathing anatomy. Glass that becomes eyes and rubber-stamped made in Japan that tie and mold the necessary pieces together to mechanically change man's physiology into Homo aquaticus. Homo aquaticus. (laughs) So yeah, it's a Homo aquaticus. I mean, it brings to light really a lot of questions of uh, who we are, what we are. We, Yes, we're Homo sapiens, uh, but we're also Homo aquaticus with the invention of scuba. I came out as a Homo aquaticus the first moment I went underwater. Oh, a lot of I people knew, I yeah. knew it was a lifestyle that I was going to embrace for the rest of my life. Oh, I resisted for the longest time. Uh, I was taking a lot of flack. Did you tell your dad about it? Well, not at, he found out. He found out. He caught me uh, one night on the couch with my uh, with a double hose regulator in my mouth. 
<laughs> That's when I had to <laughs> I had to just face the facts. I I I am a homo aquaticus. That's all there is to it. So don't be afraid. I mean, fly the flag proudly. We are satisfied with a good dive. We have conquered a place of the deep ocean for a few fleeting moments. We are men that have tasted adventure and returned (laughs) safely. We are homo aquatics who have tasted adventure and returned safely. And I think to myself, I'm glad I'm not a long gray shark. The island fragrance is too sweet. Tropical Bahamian sun, too warm. Is that where he stopped? Is that it? That's where he stopped, man. He just likes the drinks in the sun, the the smell. uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, at at one time when he was wasted underwater on the narcosis, he wanted to be the gray shark. But now that he's back on land... The sun, the sand, the surf, the beautiful bikini ladies over there on the beach to accompany him on that long moonlit walk at night with a cocktail in hand. He's thankful he's, that he's Homo Aquaticus. <laughs> homo Aquaticus. Nice. Well, as we all should be thankful. Just be proud you're Homo Aquaticus. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of who you are. Uh, not a bad little article uh, jumping back in the old time machine. Oh, these ones! Uh, these ones are, are my favorites. Yeah. And I, I love these old stories, like like these firsthand, first person perspectives mm-hmm. of, of of the dives that these guys were doing back in the day. I, I dig these old stories. You know, it's one thing to sit there and listen to a listen to an article written about the Bahamas. You know, that talks about the shopping district and the restaurants they have and the tour operators. And I mean, that, that, I mean that's great and all, but. Like these old stories of, of really how people were living a dive life back in the day. Whether you and I fully agree with how they approach a dive, you know, years later or not, to me isn't the point. It, it's this is what real life, you know? Right. You know, back in the day. Right, yeah. And that stuff was going on. I th- you know, it's just like today, you only get an article, you know, one article is probably representative of, well, a few thousand occurrences of that particular incident right when we read an article about a near near miss or near death kind of episode scuba diving i think you and i both know that that's represented that's like one little fraction of how many times it really happens right Right. for for every one you hear about there were a thousand thousand that got swept under the rug or everybody just stayed silent about exactly and i think this is along the same lines as there weren't as many divers mind you but i think it's at least you know it's like one one hundredth of what really was going on there as far as people bopping down to a couple hundred feet on air right right i mean how many of us we go to the caribbean and you, you or any you know go to florida any warm water kind of destination you talk to the dive masters and they're just young kids you know well everybody's a young kid when you're my age but you you listen to them talk and they're like yeah they they're popping down to 250 feet with a aluminum 80 on their back you know right and just uh zipping back up and yes you know hanging out you know and the, the crazy thing is is so many people that are 
recently certified or, or just, you know, recreational divers that are knocking out, you know, one, maybe two trips a year, maybe 20 dives, maybe even a hundred dives, you know, they're still, you know, they hear these, all they hear is, oh, we're doing 250 foot dives. Yeah. And they assume that the person's doing it in a smart, logical, well thought out way. <laughs> You know, that's uh, two uh, two totally different worlds. Yes, going around the world teaching, and you come to find out, you know, teaching all levels of divers through open water, recently, you know, through open water. I mean, recently certified open water to trimix instructor, course directors, and you come to find out everybody's doing stupid shit. It didn't. It doesn't matter what your background is. As far as that goes, how, how highly trained you are or how highly experienced you are. A lot of people are doing stupid shit and like this. It's, it's not a one-off kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, on that note, <laughs> let's sign some stupid logbooks. Um. <laughs> hey, uh, okay, go ahead, James. I'm gonna, you sign mine first. Here. Here's my pen. Dear Brando, uh, it was nice hanging out with you and Georgie the grouper at 180 feet today. That was you? I thought that was <laughs> I thought that was a shark. <laughs> All right, everybody. We will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for joining us. Safe diving, folks. Blah, <laughs> blah,